Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the progress, reading in the, over the last few days, there was an attitudinal survey and they were asking people about COVID-19 and how people felt about COVID-19 and was the pandemic behind us and were people, have people stopped worrying about it? And, you know, 40% of people reckoned COVID-19 uh, is with us it's, it, and it's going to remain with us and it's, it's never going to go away. And I think, you know, what most people are accepting, it'll become almost like a seasonal flu. But certainly at the moment, and I don't know if it's just me, but I'm hearing of more and more people testing positive for COVID-19, in particular hearing of people who got COVID-19 at say Christmas, December or January getting reinfected and certainly the amount of people who never had COVID and were walking around very proud of the fact that they never had COVID. I'm hearing more and more of uh, those now being struck down with COVID-19. The only thing is it does seem to be much milder than what it was at the start and I suppose all of our the vaccination programme, the booster programme and all of that has certainly uh, helped. But reading in the papers today, Alicia Regan in the Irish Independent has an edit piece where she's talking about a new COVID-19 variant which may have the capacity to spread and cause even more surges into the autumn and winter in, into the autumn and winter is now under very close surveillance. Now there is signs that the rate of increase in COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations in Ireland this summer surge that we're having at the moment it is slowing and they're still uh, reckoning it could peak soon but we know fresh waves will be expected then probably every two to three months so we'll get over this surge bit of a reprise and then we'll head into the autumn through autumn early winter and we can expect the next surge to to hit now the current wave is being fueled by the BA5 and the BA4 version of Omicron that's what most people are picking up now that followed the BA1 and the BA2 and the BA1 and the BA2, that was the one that caused the major rise in infections earlier this year. That was kind of in December and uh, January. Don't know if there was ever a BA3 version or if it was. It certainly didn't last long. But what there is now increasing worry about is a member of the Omicron family called, wait for this, BA2. 2.75. Although there is also caution uh, around causing false alarm, but the experts are saying, look, we're keeping an eye on this one. This particular BA 2.75 has been found in about 10 states in India. A small number of cases have been found in other countries, including the United Kingdom. It's been found in Canada and the US, Japan, Germany, Australia and uh, New Zealand. Now, there are several strong reasons, seemingly, to keep a close watch and investigate if it will be the variant behind another autumn or winter surge as we know and we know certainly from experience in this uh, country when a new sub lineage of Omicron involves it becomes more infectious and that's exactly what happened with Omicron it, it arrived on our shores it came it became the dominant one and then we discovered you, you almost needed to just be beside somebody who had it and if you didn't have the COVID before didn't have any immunity towards it you were going to pick it up so new variants have come and gone 
but new offsprings of Omicron for some reason have great staying power. So if the BA 2.75 is not the one that's going to cause trouble, the experts reckon there'll be another generation of Omicron, another version of it that will evolve and that's probably the one that will be even more contagious. Now the data on this new variant is limited so far but the, the basis for concern is that this version of Omicron could have more mutations beyond the BA5 which is causing the problems at the moment and they reckon it could make it better at attaching to human cells which could obviously then make it easier to get around immunity from previous infections and vaccinations and make it much more contagious. And scientists at the Imperial College in London who are studying the variant said they really believe that this one is worth keeping a very close eye on and that's obviously what they are doing. And the big question then is whether it is more severe and capable of making people who catch it very sick. More investigation obviously is needed at this stage, but we already know, and this is what we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed on, that Omicron is less severe than previous strains because it's less likely to attack the lungs because when COVID first hit, it was attacking people's lungs and that's where people ended up on respirators and people ended up in ICU. Whereas the Omicron, all of the Omicron ver- Uh, variants to date they target the upper airways more and if you speak to anyone and certainly when I had COVID I would have had one of the Omicron variants back in March uh, April it was like a really really bad head cold it was as if I was smothered with a head cold and bad sign you know my sinuses were all uh, blocked up felt miserable for a couple of days but really you know it was you know not unlike a bad sinus attack I would have had in previous uh, years. So while keeping vigilant of the potential new enemy down the track, the BA5 and the BA4, that's the summer wave one, that is continuing to cause a rise in infections, although all the indications are now that the pace is starting to slow. For example, the positivity rate for people taking PCR tests, these are the ones where people go to the HSE for the, pre, for the free PCR test. Yesterday, that fell to just under 40% and on Friday it was at just over 41%. So that's starting to uh, fall. Uh, this week and next week, they say, will tell a lot, but the incline in it will be slow. Also, some hope um, can be drawn from the admissions to uh, hospitals. They look like they're slowing. And of course, the number of pa- patients severely sick in ICU they uh, certainly will be stable and they are, they continue to be stable at 33%. Now it continues to infect and reinfect and of course it's the, it's the infection, the reinfection is causing disruption at work. Now it's certainly not on the scale of what happened earlier this uh, year. It's kind of, they reckon, a little bit like when we get a bad winter flu or a bad winter respiratory infection, lots of people at work will end up getting it and you know, we remember before COVID there would often be a bad flu or a bad respiratory infection would come into the office and it would be oh there's another person down you know with that respiratory infection so they're saying it's a little bit like that but it is having a knock-on effect for a lot of businesses and then based on experience in Portugal and the reason we looked to Portugal was Portugal was the first country in Europe to see this summer wave so people are looking to say well what happened there and that's what we can expect to happen here It, it will take time before the wave completely subsides so it means that we will soon be over the worst of it But this particular wave, it seems to slowly, the infection numbers slowly, slowly drop. They've already started and it's looking like it will continue that way. So it will mean a bit of a reprieve for much of August, probably into September. That obviously will allow time for the hospitals 
to try to make inroads into waiting lists and backlogs and obviously for the general population then to be at reduced risk of infection. It will also allow for planning to roll out more booster shots in the autumn and hopefully to plan around the kind of hybrid working that they envisage during autumn and winter months as well as obviously hospitality and entertainment venues. Many of them will I think consider investing in ventilation systems because there'll be the great migration where we'll all head back indoors again. So there will be that period where I think businesses will start to look at what can we do to invest in uh, ventilation. Uh, But certainly it is already having a bit of a knock-on effect in our hospitals uh, with more COVID cases locally and of course the fear is the hospitals don't want to see an increase in COVID outbreaks in their hospitals and lo and behold today I've had a statement in from Bantry General Hospital and they say the management there having considered the high inpatient levels of COVID-19 they've taken the difficult decision to revise visiting hours in order to protect the patients the relatives and the staff therefore from today visiting in the main hospital at Bantry will be facilitated on compassion grounds only and they've got that's got to be agreed by the ward manager and obviously the relevant consultant in advance of uh, visiting. Now Bantry Genuine Hospital tell us all visiting arrangements will be reviewed weekly so for this week that this is what they've put in place. Bantry General Hospital empathise with and understand that this announcement will make it difficult for many families however their priority is to keep if you have a loved one in the hospital, they want to keep your loved one uh, safe as well as maintain the staff and well-being of the staff at the hospital. Bantry General Hospital want to extend a very sincere thank you in anticipation of the public's cooperation with these arrangements. So if you have a loved one in Bantry General Hospital, there's a ban on visiting unless it's on compassionate grounds. And please, if you are wanting to visit the hospital on those compassionate grounds, you're going to have to contact the hospital in advance. What has been described as one of the last staging posts before this year's budget, the summer economic statement spells out how much money the government thinks it will have to spend to discuss what was announced yesterday. I'm joined by our political correspondent, that's Sean Defoe. Good morning to you, Sean. Morning, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome. Now, the newspapers yesterday morning were all uh, saying the government would have £1.5 to play around with. But listening to the figures yesterday, it sounded like there's a lot of money. We seem to be awash with money. Uh, awash with money, yeah. Money raining ahead of this budget. Uh, certainly a lot more than £1.5 and, and some reports, kind of as the day went on yesterday, indicated that, that would be the case. So the total budget package is going to be £6.7 And now €3 billion, Euro, that is already agreed and is already pre-planned and pre-spent, if you like. And that's the things like... Uh, kind of wage increases and just general keeping up with government spending uh, because it costs more now to deliver some government services due to inflation. Then you've got a billion euro, which is going to be the taxation package. So that's going to be things like changes to income tax, um, which could potentially be sort of moving around the brackets at which people pay the higher rate of income tax, like what they've done in the last few years, or indeed more wholesale changes like maybe a new income tax rate, which is what Fine Gael has been looking for. And that leaves you with 2.7 billion then uh, to spend on money for next year. Now, 400 million euro of that is going to be brought forward into 2022, into the latter half of this year, uh, to be spent on potentially a public sector pay agreement or other cost of living measures. So uh, in a long winded way, what I'm saying is 2.3 billion euro is the magic number of unassigned spending that they have for next year. Things still haven't been agreed that ministers will now be fighting over heading into the autumn budget to get the biggest slice from their department. Has there ever been so many demands on a government? 
But there's always demand. There are like we kind of forget it every year. There is always some sort of a crisis. And when we're talking about things like a rainy day fund, which you Neil know, Bragg has been talking about this morning, you kind of forget that every year when it comes to budget, it seems like there's a rainy day. There's always something that has to be spent. But this year in particular, and if you look at that 2.3 billion euro. It doesn't go very far when you actually get down to it. You think 2.3 billion, my God, that's a lot of money. But the new public sector pay deal will have to come out of that. That could be anywhere from 1.2 to 1.6 billion euro. Then if you, even if you did say across the board a 10 euro rise in social welfare payments, that would cost another 750 million euro. And then you've got all the other commitments that we have, health, housing, etc. There's a big fund in here as well, 4.5 billion for one-off spending, three billion of that is going to go towards uh, the housing of Ukrainian refugees and the various services that they'll need. There's a big cut of that will need to go towards COVID, but we don't know how much. And other one-off spending that the government might have uh, over 2023. So there is a lot coming from all sorts of different areas. We've got the immediate crisis in the cost of living measures. We've got the ongoing crisis in health and housing and childcare and all these other areas. So yeah, there's a huge amount of demand and what seems like a, a bumper package at first suddenly trickles away very quickly when you add all that up. And there's been so much talk of, and Simon Coveney actually um, tied in with this one, a, a double social welfare bonus. In adv- not we, we know the Christmas one, this would be an extra double social welfare bonus. Is that on the cards? That is on the cards, yeah. Now, it hasn't been finally agreed yet. Yesterday wasn't a manner of actually agreeing final policies, but it is something that is being discussed by ministers. The Christmas bonus obviously comes every year, a double payment of social welfare. And what they're looking at now is basically doing that again, doing it a little bit earlier sometime in the autumn. Usually has a price tag of somewhere in the 300 to 400 million euro range. So it isn't exactly a cheap measure, but it is something that the government thinks it could do. That would target those who are feeling the pinch the most, if you like, those who are on the likes of job seekers allowance, who are on the state pension, who are, are getting child benefit and those other payments fall under it. And they seem to favour those one-off payments rather than giving something that they're then going to have to roll back on. Exactly. Well, the problem with, um, I suppose, those sort of welfare increases across the board is you don't just have to pay for them next year. You have to then pay for them every year. So if you you find, uh, you know, 750 million or a billion euro to, to increase social welfare payments, you then have to find that every single year thereafter. And that can be a problem, particularly when the... The economic clouds, I suppose, are a little bit grey or a little bit certain over the coming years, whereas you have a situation at the minute where corporation tax receipts are absolutely booming. Corporation tax now accounts for one euro in every year. Sorry, no, accounts for a quarter of the tax that the government takes in. And one euro in every eight is coming from just 10 companies. So it's a very narrow tax base. And were even one of those companies, say, to, to look at the new international minimum rate and decide, well, I could get a better deal moving the company to somewhere else, we could be in a lot of bother. But where you could potentially use that money is either into a rainy day fund or into one-off measures like the one-off bonus payment or like another a round of the 200 euro electricity credit which will cost somewhere in the region of 400 million as well. Yeah, so that's why I saw the budgetary watchdog, the Fiscal Advisory Council, saying that the strong corporation tax receipts shouldn't be relied on to fund permanent spending increases. And that's exactly. for that reason. Exactly, yeah. So you, you can rely on them this year and you know we have the money this year and I think it's an extra 3 billion ahead of where they expect it to be. We're basically only in a surplus because of corporation tax. So one-off spending, capital spending, fine, but you shouldn't be building anything in that you will have to you know, rely on corporation tax next year or the year after because you just don't know 100% that it's going to be there. And the budget is going to be 6.5% increase on last year's spend 
And that's above the threshold. Wasn't there a 5% threshold set by the government for those measures saying that they'd never go above 5%? Yeah, well, this is a, a relatively new rule. It was introduced in last year's summer economic statement. So you could sort of uh, quibble over the fact whether or not it's a rule if you've only done it for one year and in that one year you actually broke it. Um, but it was the theory that they would have this rule that government spending would only go above, uh, would only go a maximum of 5% above the previous year to sort of not get into a, a situation of tearaway spending um, like we had maybe in the Celtic Tiger. But they have made the case that this year is an outlier year that when they made that rule, it was based on so inflation being somewhere between zero and 2% and wage growth being around 3%. Now, obviously, we have inflation probably going to peak in, in, into double digits in about 10% at some point in the next coming months. So the situation is very different. They haven't matched that figure. It's only gone 6.5% rather than going to, say, 7 8%. But it is a, a breaking of their own rules for this year, all right. OK, and the budget is going to be, again, anticipated it is going to be early, not a full month early, but it is going to be earlier than October. About two weeks early. So usually it's the second week in October. And now they've brought it forward to the 27th of September. Obviously, a lot of opposition parties and even some in government saying, can we not do something sooner? Can we not get something done before the summer break? People are suffering now. Um, the government saying, look, the budget is the right place to do this. Autumn is going to be very difficult. We don't know what Vladimir Putin is going to do, how much supply is going to turn off to Europe and what the knock-on effects on energy prices will be. We'll all have to heat our homes more in the winter anyway, just by, by dint of it being winter and things being darker and colder. And that is where the pinch point is going to come. So they think by having a, a bigger package then, rather than doing sort of more piecemeal things through time, uh, that's when we we'll get done. And, and in terms of bringing the entire budget forward, there's a lot of kind of apparatus that goes into the budget. It has to go to Europe. It has to be approved at various different levels. There's a lot of checks and balances. And, of course, there's the ministers actually going in and having to argue. So they think even bringing it forward two weeks is probably the, the earliest they can stretch it. OK. Are they way off in their summer holidays now? Another, is it next week or two weeks? I can't actually remember. But two weeks, two weeks of the dawn left. Um, and then, yes, although I, I don't think it would be much of a summer holidays for the two finance ministers because everything they used to have to get done, they have to get done a little bit early this time. But, yeah, the doll is going to rise and that, that six-week break sort of kicks in. Though I have a feeling it's not going to be much of a break this year because of the absolute pressure people are under. You're definitely going to hear calls for the, the doll to be recalled at some point uh, in the winter. There are all those pressures that are facing. But, yeah, the doll won't be sitting for, I think, from the middle of July until the middle of September. Yeah, it's six weeks. Does it mean political correspondence? Respondents get six weeks off as well. <laughs> I, I wish. I absolutely wish. You no, can only I'm, dream. You can only dream. I, I can only dream, but even trying to plan a holiday, I'm looking and going, ooh, that's a bit expensive this year. I know. So we'll see. <laughs> nothing, not, nothing in the books yet, but uh, we live in vain hope. And then I would say to you, if you're planning on leaving the country, come down here to Cork and fly out from Cork, uh, Sean. It's an absolute dream. Avoid Dublin Honestly. Airport. I, I'm, I'm very seriously considering it, either Cork or Shannon, because well uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I go through Dublin, my bags will be coming back with me. <laughs> Good, listen, thank you for that. And uh, no doubt we will speak again in the summer, uh, but thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks a Good morning to you. Uh, bye-bye. That is our political uh, correspondent, uh, Sean Defoe. And that's what we should be telling anyone that we know that uh, in Dublin, tell them if they, if they are planning on going away on a trip, come down here to Cork instead. Actually, I saw a very funny tweet yesterday, somebody travelling through Cork Airport and put up a tweet that they wished to complain that it had taken them three and a half minutes to get through security at uh, Cork Airport and they tagged Dublin Airport uh, on it. I'm sure anybody there was, and there was queues yesterday for some reason they 
listening to a bit of a pinch point yesterday morning with queues at uh, Dublin Airport. And I'm sure anyone standing in a queue looking at that tweet would have been absolutely seething. Now, the fishing industry is facing what has been described as the perfect storm of circumstances that must be addressed urgently by government to avoid permanent damage to the sector. That's according to groups representing the industry. Joining me from the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation in Castletown Bear, but I believe joining me from Brussels is their CEO, Patrick Murphy. Good morning to you, Patrick. Good morning, Patricia, uh, and, and once again, good morning to the listeners. Well, and uh, thank you for, for joining us. We have now had months and months of rising fuel prices. Are we at a stage where some of the fleet simply can't afford to pay for fuel to go to sea? Yes, and, and that's been there for a while and lads are going out hoping that the prices will be better when they come back in. Uh, easiest way to describe this, Patricia, is this. The fisherman is standing in quicksand, and he has two choices. He can allow himself to sink, which is tie up to the pier and not go fishing, or he can struggle and try and get out of it. But by doing that, we all know you sink faster. So we need our minister to throw us a lifeline to pull us out of the quicksand. Traditional fish and chips, which is such a popular staple on so many Irish uh, menus. Uh, I, I saw you mention it yesterday in a press release. I see it in the papers this morning. Are we in danger of losing fish and chips? Well, if we're not in danger of losing it, you're you're losing it from the Irish side. So the Irish boats won't be supplying it because they won't be fishing. And that's the truth. So what will happen then is we're going to have a knock-on effect. So we have food coming from other parts of the globe, right, that's we can buy here because we're affluent and we have a little bit extra cash in comparison to those. So we'll have a knock-on effect where we'll be taking the food out of the mouths of those in the likes of Africa and other places around the country where they'll be catching the fish and exporting it in here. So it'll be a double whammy. We'll be causing harm and, and upset and lack of food in other places if we don't catch it in our own water. And then watch the prices go up. Absolutely. And there you go. So on top of everything else, we're going to see that. So one way or the other, the public are going to pay. Now, for this money, Patricia, just in case people are saying, Asher, the fishermen are looking for this, fellas looking for this money is there. It's under the European Maritime Fisheries Fund. It's like cap for the farming community, right? Mm -hmm. And I sit on the operational monitoring program committee. And we were told there's six million there that hasn't been spent. And if that doesn't get spent, it goes back to Europe. So that money is what we're looking for, for the minister to give us that for the start off and to look to take funds from the next operational programme that the European Commission and the Parliament have voted on to help us, and not just us, other fleets. And that's in the press release. We see other fleets getting this aid, and that's all it is, is aid. Yeah, is it true, for example, French and Spanish fishermen? They're being supported by their governments. Is it through that aid aid package you're talking about? Yeah, you see, so for a fisherman to go to sea, Patricia, his expenses are huge. And what we're trying to do is to get this aid to reduce that cost to a loan to go to sea. Because if he doesn't go to sea, back to the quicksand, he doesn't earn anything. The crew leaves. And if they go somewhere else, you know yourself, it's very hard to get somebody back. If you're going home to your wife and your family and you're saying, listen, next week we'll go and make money and we're pay our bills and then you have a scenario where they might be earning as much or the opportunity to make as much but it's a steady income it's very hard to leave that job to go back into a gambling situation 
And that's what yeah, and have you any idea why the government are not using these funds that are available from the EU? I think, Patricia, that there has to be, there's a mindset now in the the department and in the top of, of, of the government at the, the cabinet table that we can't differentiate between one group or another and if we give money here, we should wait until October. What we are explaining through our press release it's too late to give us money in October. We won't have an industry. We'll be gone. You're just not going to expect people to sit in their hands from July until October or November before the aid comes. We need it now. You know, like I explained it to uh, another interviewer, was that you have a patient inside the bed. You either buy him the medicine or you give him a pillow later on. Well, without the medicine, you don't need the pillow because the patient is expired. And we're going to expire as an industry if the minister doesn't act and act now. And we're not saying this uh, without credible arguments. Fuel was 30 cents a litre. It's gone to 120. It is the biggest expense the boat uses to go to sea. And there just isn't enough fish there to cover the expenses and pay wages, pay for the, the other expenses, the, the normal ones, the upkeep of the boat, the paying off the loans, the Wi-Fi, the net the gear, the new sonar, the new sounder, the new winch, the new things, these all wear outside the sea and constantly you have to invest just to stand still. If that money isn't there, where's it going to come from? That fuel price, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here doing the figures in front of me, from 30 cent to 120, that's a 400% increase. Yeah, yeah. And you see, people will say, well, how do they do that? Well, I'll explain why. The way fishing operates is First of all, each expedition is an expedition. You, you accrue debt before you go out, and when you cover those debts, you start to make a profit, and people start to get paid for their work, right? But it might be the third or fourth day into a trip before you, you cross that line. That line now has been extended to the sixth and seventh day of a trip, so you might make money on the last day, if you're lucky, if you get the right prices. So it, there's no room then. So what happens is the boat owner is taking money from his money and he's subsidising the, the fishermen because without them, there's no operation. And we have scenarios now that fellas are even being paid a daily wage just to keep going uh, uh, to go out to sea. So, you know, we're, we're doing everything and anything to stay operating, stay fishing because... I know. And, and, and when the fishing industry enters a, a downturn, uh, Patrick, I'm right in saying that the, the, all the coastal communities suffer because of it. Well, there's no fish there, so there's no fish for the processors, there's no fish for the, for the counters, there's no fish for the restaurants. This is a primary source of income for so many other people. You're, you're taking away the foundation of your house and the house will fall. But, you know, we're talking about micro and how badly one element, so your wiring and everything else, your timber is fine, but one weak element, your block is going to bring the whole lot down. Well, for us, it's fishing. You're going to bring down the social fabric of coast communities that depend on fishing and that'll have a ripple effect all the way into the inland, uh, you know, and, and we're only the first. If, if we are allowed to go, who's next? Yeah, Bernadette in West Cork says, says it's, it's on that, the coastal community. She says, I don't think people realise how necessary the fishing industry is to this country. The knock-on effect in local communities, the economic uh, benefit. And she cites, for example, we can get city traders who travel to Union Hall in Castletown Bear for fish every day. But they don't just come and take the fish and go. They might stay, hang around. They might have a cup of coffee. They might get some breakfast in the local area. That's just one aspect, of that, but that all brings business in without fishing all 
all of that uh, uh, goes. And, and because of the situation in the Ukraine, Patrick, we're constantly hearing about food security, so, which is now more important than ever. Your industry can help with that. You see, this is the thing, Patricia. The European Union, right, the Commission and the Parliament acknowledge that. So they've given the tools, they've given the ability to draw down on this money that if it isn't spent, goes back to them. This money isn't one going to cost our exchequer or country a cent. This is money that comes from Europe that hasn't been allocated or spent, and we need it to be allocated on this provision to allow boats to keep fishing. It's not to top them up or increase their wages. It takes down the prices, the fuel of the next purchase, and they're allowed to go out and continue with the fishing. And even at that, they're still taking a risk, or if the price goes up even more, they're in jeopardy. But without it, they're in the quicksand. They have no choice. And Dennis in Mallow says, uh, listening to Patrick and the lack of support that the fishing industry is getting from the state, it's bringing Dennis back to when we lost our sugar industry. And of course, being from Mallow, there was a sugar factory here in uh, Mallow. Are they going to make the same mistake with fishing? Because it was only after we lost the sugar factory that they realised, whoops, we made a bit of a mistake uh, with that. And are you hearing anything back from the government, Patrick? Are Are you getting any response from them? You see, this is the reason why we're doing this now is because what we had heard from people within government themselves were saying to us, you need to make noise about this. This is serious. You need to make the cabinet and the other ministers understand this isn't whinging or the, or the whinging child, right? It's looking for attention. This is critical to the survival of our industry and not just now, but into the future. It, just like that man said, he's dead right. We're tearing away at the fabric of our communities, taking away industries that have been there for hundreds of years. And they only need assistance. They don't need uh, subsidies. They need assistance. We're looking for aid to allow to continue. It's not like we're going to get this money and sit on, on a beach somewhere and say, well, that's handy now. What uh, pay for the next drink? They're going to use this money to continue to fish, to continue to bring in the resources into the country to generate more wealth. We're only the starting point. But you take us out, you're knocking the rest of the dominoes as well. Yeah, and it's just to get you over this crisis at the moment. I mean, we're all hopeful that one day things will will settle down again and the price of fuel will return to some kind of normality. But in the meantime, uh, you certainly have uh, sold it well. So, ha- this, so this is Article 26.2.2. This is European law now that's been introduced for this. You know, we didn't look and, and write this law. The European Union did and the, Euro- and the PESH committee. And it's there for our government to use and we're asking them to use it. Okay. We're pleading with them to All use right. it. Everybody in industry. Listen, as I said at the outset, I know you're in Brussels, so I thank you for taking time out to talk to us uh, to, today, uh, Patrick. Stay safe and uh, thanks for that. And thanks very much, Patricia. Listen, we, we always thank you for this because without the public listening to this and understanding this, it doesn't put pressure up the chain and, and to tell these people to make the right decisions and they need to make the right decision here or we're, we're going to be ruining it for, for generations to come. And that would be such, such a shame. Listen, thank you, Patrick. And uh, thanks thank for joining you. us. Good morning to you. That is Patrick Murphy, CEO of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation uh, based in Castletown. Bear John and Toker says people don't really
realise when they go in and order their fish and chips on a Saturday night where it actually comes from. It comes from the likes of uh, Patrick and that industry that go out in boats to get fish. There's nothing like fresh fish and chips, says uh, John. It's too late, too late to be angry if we lose our industry. On uh, the way, uh, we're going to be talking about research that's been conducted into the hospitality uh, sector and what they can do about the crisis they have with staffing levels. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. The Marie Keating Foundation, that wonderful cancer charity, have been on to mention that today their mobile information unit with a nurse in attendance is will be parked at the Mart in Canturk. Well, it's actually there from 10 o'clock this morning. It's a free service for both men and women and they provide cancer information and awareness on all cancer topics and the nurse will be only too happy to talk to anyone if you have any concerns or any questions in relation to uh, cancer and they're inviting people to drop in and it is a completely free service that's in Canturk uh, from now for today the Marie Keating Foundation their mobile unit and actually staying on the theme of cancer and this time from the Irish Cancer Society thank you to Mary Cullity in Newmarket uh, for sending me on uh, a message to say and we, we had spoken about this They the good people of uh, Newmarket they were the organisers there weren't able to have Daffodil Day you know it's normally held in March so they held it uh, a couple of weeks ago and they had a really really successful fundraising uh, day and in total 3,850 euro were raised for Daffodil Day for 2022 with all proceeds going to the Irish Cancer Society so thank you to everybody who helped out all the pre- the business premises particular super value the post office Relish and the Credit Union who facilitated Daffodil Day collection in Newmarket uh, this year and uh, well done to anybody who gave any euro or two and contributed in any way it's a great sum of money from one small uh, town 0818 103 103 a number of people reacting to my interview with Patrick speaking about what's going on in the fishing industry Hi Patricia I'm just so angry listening to Patrick speaking about how our fishing industry is being treated our fishing industry is one of the industries at the core of our country if our government can't save it then they shouldn't be in the job where is the leadership in this government there's no inspiration or motivation to problem solve. It is so, so frustrating. And another listener says, Patricia, have the government any money in their big financial package? They spoke about yesterday for the fishermen and the good old traditional fish and chips. Will we be deprived of our Saturday night fish supper? Social welfare and childcare must be bursting at the seams with the money they seem to be throwing at both of those. Uh, in, well, not industries, well, the childcare is an industry, but I don't think anybody in social welfare feels money's been thrown at them. But I know the point you're making, all we seem to be hearing is about subsidies to childcare and trying to help people on social welfare. What about the uh, fishermen? But what's really frustrating listening to Patrick this morning and this wasn't something I was aware of until he contacted us uh, yesterday uh, just last the end of last week it might have been actually over the weekend the European Commission activated what is a crisis mechanism to grant financial compensation for lost income and additional costs because of the seafood market disruption and it's been activated under the umbrella of the European Maritime Fisheries and Aquaculture Fund and the crisis mechanism is a temporary measure and applies retrospectively as of the 24th of February this year and it'll be in place for the rest of this year. So it's up to every government within the EU 
EU that has a fishing industry, they can tap into this fund. So it's not that the government even have to take the money out of their own coffers. They can tap into this fund. And the French government have, have done it and the Spanish government have done it and their fishermen have been helped out, which is obviously straight away putting the Irish fishermen at a disadvantage when they're up against the French and the Spanish. So it's, it's, it's slightly frustrating and a little bit mind-boggling as to why they're not tapping into this fund that has been made available by the European uh, Commission. So thank you for your texts. And uh, Breda in Mallow says, Patricia, uh, I was down in West Cork and really enjoyed uh, my fish and chicken but I was actually told that the fish had come from Donegal. I didn't believe that this could be true when I was there down in beautiful West uh, Cork. I wasn't able to clarify would anybody else know. Fish sold in the West Cork uh, area. Would it come all the way from Donegal? I would have thought all of the fish anytime we're having uh, any kind of fish either the traditional fish and chips or fish in many of the gorgeous restaurants around West Cork. I would have assumed it was all coming from caught on local boats. I don't quite know how that works. So can anybody confirm or deny that? Fish that Breda in Mallow would have bought in West Cork. She was told that the fish had been caught off Donegal and then brought down to West Cork. If anybody can clarify that for us, please do. 0818 103 103 or you can text to 0862 103 103. And looking at some of our other texts coming in, I, I, this is on COVID. This just says, I heard a certain person who tested positive for COVID was out and was in a shop and was saying, well, I've got COVID, but I'm actually fine. And when she was asked to leave the shop, she actually abused the owner. No wonder COVID is uh, everywhere. People are not isolating like they are meant to do. And then on a, some different uh, issues. But hi, uh, good morning to you, Patricia. Uh, people are still cycling on footpaths in Bantry Town. And uh, I'm wondering, is this a common occurrence in other towns? And that's signed a regular listener. Love your programme. Thank you for that. Cycling on footpaths. Do I see much cycling on footpaths when I'm out and about? I, I saw the other day somebody on one of those electric scooters and the speed at which those electric scooters could go and they're silent I mean they and I was sitting in the car but I, it was just this this I just happened to look into my rear view a mirror and I could see somebody coming down on, on a scooter and they were on the footpath and the speed at which and it was down a hill they were coming I was thinking oh my god I hope the brakes are, are good because they would have been coming into oncoming traffic because obviously the traffic I I where I was was stopped but the traffic coming against us obviously was going the other way now he did stop and whatever but I just thought the speed of it and now in, on, on reflection he was on the footpath but that's a scooter don't know about people cycling bicycles on footpaths and why it seems to be such a problem according to this listener in Bantry anybody else noticing a lot of people cycling on footpaths and I know cyclists would probably say the reason that they're opting to cycle on footpaths is they feel safer because our roads can be very busy and if some of our roadways are too narrow and there's traffic going both ways you can be taking your life in your own hands getting on a bicycle cycling on our roads but then that doesn't make it right for you to jump onto the footpath instead your thoughts welcomed on that 0862103103 and here's a tale of woe out uh, about Irish Rail and in particular Mallow train station from John says Patricia last Saturday we parked our car at Mallow train station and we were to travel on the 10.45am train departing for Dublin as we entered the train station to purchase our tickets we noticed a handwritten sign saying next train to Dublin 
2.45. We were then informed by an Irish Rail employee that the trains were completely sold out and they were sold out online so there was no tickets available at the train station. We asked why they didn't put on extra carriages or indeed another train and the employee said sorry I don't know but all I know is that the train is sold out no seats available. We asked would there be a bus provided instead and the answer again was no. We then complained because we just paid for our car parking for the day which had cost us €4.50. Euro and 50 cent. We said can we get a refund on that because obviously we're going to be leaving the train station now to which he replied Irish Rail has nothing to do with the car park. Uh, we were lucky that we did have the option to drive uh, to Dublin which we end, ended up having to do but really it's just so ridiculous. When you consider Eamon Ryan, Transport Minister leader of the Green Party. He wants all of us to use public transport and to get out of our cars. Well, Mr. Ryan, provide the basics first, please. Or should we invest in a donkey and cart, says our uh, John. And, you know, the idea of going on the train, it's a much more enjoyable experience and you don't have to worry about bringing the car to Dublin and that it's the longer journey and then trying to get parking in Dublin. I can I can sense your frustration and, the, and, and then to get stuck having paid for the car parking charge. And I don't even know how you could get a refund on that unless you were able to spot somebody who was about to pay for parking to say, I'll sell you my ticket in, instead. Somebody might might have done that uh, for you, but it's... Yeah, should the sign have been outside the train station rather than let people park up, pay for their parking, go in to discover that there was no train until 2.45. But when the train is sold out, the train is sold out. Because I know the day that, funny enough, John Paul was going to Dublin when he was going up to the Justice Media Awards that they had booked their train tickets online. I know that morning Barry on our reading our news was saying something about all of the early trains to Dublin were completely sold out and they've been sold out online. To anybody who needed to go to Dublin, you weren't going to be able to get on one of the early trains. And I was talking to, to John Paul, so it was the train full, and he said it was. But they can't, there was the, the Harry Styles concert was on in Dublin, so a lot of the tickets had been sold and, and booked out uh, for that. So you do get periods of time where if there's something on in Dublin, I don't know what was going on in Dublin last Saturday, but if there's any kind of concert or any kind of a match, the tickets do sell out. That's why they encourage people uh, to book online rather than before we'd all just, just turned up at the train station and bought our tickets. But that seems to be the way it is now. We're all, you all, We all now need to get our, our tickets in advance which is uh, rather than be disappointed like that to turn up at the train station and the train isn't there well thankfully as you say you were you did have the option to drive but if you didn't have the option to drive uh, and you had an appointment or you were going to, to Dublin for some reason you could have been really caught out 0818 103 103 and Michael and this is an issue we're going to be uh, talking about this is staffing within the hospitality uh, Michael says Patricia many hotels restaurants and hospitality businesses across our Emerald Isle are faced with cutting back on opening hours and bookings. Why? It's all down to staff shortages. Our airports are a farce, especially Dublin uh, Airport. And as I mentioned, Dublin Airport again yesterday uh, was seemed to be quite chaotic at times. All these bodies drew down massive aid from the government during COVID-19, paid for by the taxpayer, and some of them treated their staff really badly, and now it's come back to bite. The airlines will lose their landing slots. The loss alone will have massive repercussions on tourism within this country. Why would any intelligent species destroy their own business and our homeland? The day of the Kate Meal of Falta is rapidly vanishing in Ireland. Thanking you, says uh, Michael. 
and and it's not just in this country. There's a knock-on, particularly within the aviation uh, industry, because other countries are having the similar problems that we're having here. I mean, if you look at Heathrow, the what is it, the, the busiest airport, or is it the second busiest airport in the world? Anyway, it's one of the busiest airports, if not the busiest airport in the world. And there are chaotic scenes coming out from uh, Heathrow, and it's down to staffing problems. And of course, they have the knock-on of Brexit in that a lot of the workers, the you. European workers went home and they can't get other, they won't issue visas to people within Europe to come and work there and Boris Johnson is kind of digging his seeds in on that and English people themselves don't want to do the jobs that are done, particularly the jobs that are done at the airport. I mean baggage handlers for example, there's a huge uh, shortage and that's been reflected actually in other airports around the world on top of uh, many of the workers feel that they're low paid and there's strike action happening in other airports and of course the knock on then uh, is happening for Dublin with flights getting cancelled etc. But certainly in Dublin Airport we, we've had a huge problem with staffing even though the DAA are saying that we, we're getting back up to close uh, to, uh, it'll be a while before they're back up to the full staffing numbers they had before COVID-19 but yes they did leave all the workers uh, go and airlines are affected as well because they left many of their staff go. Ryanair weirdly enough are one of the airlines that managed to hang on to a load of their staff. Now I know what a number of their staff did was uh, rather than be let go they took wage uh, cuts but it meant their pilots licences for example they kept all their pilots licences up to date and they haven't been really affected by staffing issues. Small number in Spain now are right with are threatening to go on strike and that's having, it's having a very small effect but even when all the chaos was happening last week with Aer Lingus having to cancel all the flights into that would have been some would say the ones into Heathrow was Heathrow's decision but Ryanair didn't have to cancel any of their flights and they didn't seem to have the same staffing problems but certainly at the airport with luggage and we had our own family incident that happened at the weekend uh, when my sister-in-law has travelled from Australia with her husband and her two gorgeous children and the excitement about her coming home we haven't seen her since before the pandemic we've watched these little children grow up on a video screen you know by FaceTiming her and we couldn't wait to all get up and, and get, to get together and meet and she arrived they arrived into Dublin airport late on Thursday night now the flight out of Heathrow was already delayed and of course when I knew that they were in Heathrow my heart sank and I thought oh my god are there bags ever going to arrive and of course their bags didn't arrive and then uh, when we went to see them on Saturday the bags still hadn't arrived and it was awful, awful start to their holiday. Saturday evening as we were about to head out for a meal, a van pulled up and this man with a, a van full of suitcases going around the country delivering suitcases one of the four pieces of luggage uh, arrived. Then on um, we were tracking it and it seemed they'd found another suitcase but they couldn't get an exact date or time when that was going to arrive. So on late on Sunday evening a second suitcase arrived and that was the children's clothes. The first suitcase by the way was my brother-in-law's suitcase Sod's Law. The, the, the lady in the party, my sister-in-law, her bag didn't arrive and the pram for the little one didn't arrive either. So uh, my brother-in-law ended up yesterday morning at 6am leaving Clonmel and had to drive to Dublin Airport and then spent hours. He got permission to go into where all the luggage was and he literally had to go through hundreds upon hundreds of pieces of luggage to try to find Maria's suitcase which by the way happened to be a black suitcase it would be Sod's Law wouldn't it and looking at the pictures that he sent back from Dublin Airport there was a lot of black suitcases he eventually managed to find it and also has uh, located the, the bug 
buggy as well but I mean just a dreadful start uh, to their holiday for sure and so many other families are being faced with similar scenes uh, to that which is just really really is uh, shocking but a lot of it goes back to staff shortages and a lot of it goes back to low paid work in a lot of these uh, jobs and people left the industry and went out and got different jobs with better pay and better terms and conditions so it's hard to get people to go back in and particularly if the contracts if they're not very secure contracts so it's a big problem going forward 0818 103 103 John Paul taking your calls you can text your WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs a joiner slash cabinet maker and an apprentice joiner are all wanted for Mallow joinery you can call 086-1983056. Activity Lake Attendant and General Operative wanted at Tralee Bay Wetlands Eco and Activity Park in Tralee. Send CV and a cover letter, please, to Joni McAuliffe at info at treleebaywetlands.org. Sheet Metal Workers and a HVAC installer wanted for a new project in Cork. CVs to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com and full-time and weekend production operators are wanted to work at Alps in Mill Street. Application forms are available from info at alps.ie. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The hospitality industry has said around 40,000 workers left the sector in the wake of the pandemic and staff shortages are now a threat to the post-COVID recovery. Deirdre Curran is a lecturer at NUI in Galway and she joins me to discuss research she's conducted on the hospitality industry. Good morning to you, Deirdre. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, You're welcome to the programme. Was there staffing problems within the hospitality sector prior to the pandemic? That is a wonderful question because one of the myths that you hear bandied about is that staff shortages have been caused by the pandemic and that's simply not true. So in 2019, before the pandemic, I conducted a fairly substantial piece of research on the lived experience of hospitality workers. So I'm just going to share with you a couple of stats here. Um, And remember, there are human beings behind these statistics. So 77% responded experiencing verbal abuse, sometimes or often. 64% psychological abuse, sometimes or often. And 15% physical abuse, sometimes or often. So 15 is a low number, but how often is it respectable and acceptable for someone to put their hands on you in an aggressive or intimidating way? 55% experienced or witnessed harassment. 63% witnessed or experienced bullying. 48% felt they had no voice at all, not even to make a positive suggestion. Um, And then there was all sorts of statistics around people not getting their basic minimum employment rights. So these issues have far preceded the pandemic. Um, But what the pandemic has done is it has caused what I'm, uh, if you pardon the pun, calling a tipping point. Uh, With the pandemic, hospitality workers had an opportunity to stop and think and say to themselves, What am I doing? I've been here for 15 years. What have I got to show for it? What are my prospects for the future? And people reconsidered uh, their working lives going forward. 
So people, and obviously then people were forced out of the industry. They lost their jobs at the time of the pandemic. So some then obviously the retrained went into a completely different type of work. Yeah. And what they're now probably better paid as well and certainly better working conditions. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. But but Patricia, those for a lot of people, and I've I've done I'm, I'm writing up a project that I did recently around hospitality workers who stayed in the industry versus those who left. The ones who left, it was often a decision of the head rather than the heart. Because if there's one thing that has been consistent in my research, when you say to hospitality workers, what do you like about working in the industry? It becomes very clear that they have a passion for mm. hospitality work. They love people. They love customers, they love their colleagues, they love the buzz of delivering good service, they love the variety of the work. So those who left, and yes, they went to better paid, better conditions, uh, more predictable work life, uh, an ability to get a mortgage, all of that. Uh, but it was it was against their will, if you like, because they would have preferred to stay. And my argument is they should be able to stay. So hospitality should be providing decent paying conditions opportunities for growth and development, the prospect of a career where they can raise two children and put food on the table and have a mortgage. Uh, But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case for decades. And unless the industry reconsiders uh, what it's offering, we're going to continue to have these problems. Now, another piece of work I'm working on at the moment with a colleague of mine called Dr. Finian O'Driscoll from Shannon College of Hotel Management is a case study of good practice. So this is a hotel that has Uh, decided it's going to offer a different and better employee proposition, better terms and conditions, more voice, uh, better working hours, more flexibility. And uh, we're we're currently writing up the details of that. And if it turns out to be as good as as it's starting to look, it will be a benchmark for the industry because so much could be done, Patricia, to make this an acceptable and respectable and desired career. But um, but the industry, the suggestions of the industries, oh, let's produce more visas to bring in people from EU and non-EU countries to work in places that were unacceptable for our own employees is not the answer. Marketing, spending millions on marketing to second level students to say it's a brilliant career, you'll see the world with hospitality is not the answer either, unless they have cleaned up the industry before before any of those things happen. And, and Patricia, there's a generational difference here. So where you and I may have gone in and done the hard slog and maybe... The younger people today won't. They will not do it. Mm. They will not do it. They, they want a different future and fair play to them. They want different working conditions. And unless the industry again responds to that, the labour shortages are not only going to continue, but they're going to get worse. And the one thing I've noticed, uh, Deirdre, when you're out and, and about, I mean, mm. it's, it's very obvious that... Uh, Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW places in hospitality are understaffed. The staff that are working seem to be under incredible pressure. They are. So that project that I mentioned to you, Patricia, of uh, the people who stayed in the industry and the people who left, I asked them, one of the things I asked them was, if you were in front of a, a government task force, what would you say are the challenges that you are facing in the industry today? And they said things like being overworked and overwhelmed. So the people who stayed are constantly having to train in people who have been employed because they have a pulse, not necessarily because they have any passion or skill in the industry. Uh, they're having to cover for, short, for, for shortages of staff. They're having to work twice as hard. Their working hours and their actual hours, there's a big gap between them. They, are, they themselves are still uh, concerned about the risk from COVID because you and I know that it hasn't gone away. So there's an awful lot of additional pressure. And then we have inflation on top of that, additional pressure on the employees who are loyal to the industry and stayed. And these are experienced, um, skilled people. It drives me demented when people say that hospitality is unskilled work. My response is, you try it. Um, and they they want to stay and they want to do a good job and they want to deliver high service, but everything is mitigating against them uh, against them doing that. So and there, and there, I know there's an issue with people training up and they're they're they don't last a week. That that yes. that's a real real problem. It is, uh, you know, because there's such a shortage. I mean, I've had employers tell me that when they advertise a post, if you turn up for the interview, you've more or less got the job, and that is an emergency strategy. But it's not necessarily a good strategy because that person, as I say, may not be suited to it. And then the people who are who are experienced are having to, to bring that person along and cover up for for you know mistakes that they're making. Um, so we're having it where we have a sticking plaster uh, approach to these problems when there were decades where the development of these issues were uh, were ignored. So uh, Adrian Cummins from the Restaurant Association himself said in front of an Oireachtas committee, we've had staff shortages since 2012. So my question is, well, what 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 actions did you take to address those uh, in the intervening period? So, um, you know, people say there's, there's the myths around the industry. People say, oh, it's only a few bad apples. I hear this all the time. Well, if that's the case, those few bad apples must have employed a hell of a lot of people because 
everybody in the street that I speak to will tell you, oh, yes, that's true. That happened to me. And, you know, in the report that I did in 2019, it's written in a very accessible and user-friendly way. It's designed that a hotel kitchen porter can pick it up, read it, understand it, relate to it or not. And it's full of the voice of hospitality workers because my motive for conducting this research, two motives, one is to give voice to hospitality workers who are being silenced. And two is to provoke a conversation that will lead to positive change that is for the benefit of everybody, employers, customers, employees, society in general. So if you bear with me, I just want to read you out a couple of quotes, Patricia, because I always like to use the actual words. And these are undoctored words of hospitality workers. Uh, Here we go. At a restaurant that I worked worked in, one particular guy was badly bullied. It affected his self-esteem, his work, his lifestyle and his sleep and the quality of his life generally. For a good while, he stopped working out of fear. The second one, I'm treated like a horse as they feel I'm able to do five people's work instead of one person's work. It's so hard to work in a place that expects you to do everything. And the last one, verbal bullying disguised as banter happens frequently. Also, the way some staff speak about other members, usually lower ranked members, behind their back is despicable. Racist, sexist, homophobic language being used frequently. So there's, God, you know, um, I'm, uh, yeah, it's shocking. And that's that's only the tip of, oh, here we go with the tip, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm like almost obsessed now about speaking up on behalf of hospitality well workers. Done. Well done. We well have done. all yeah, of one of our listeners says it's fantastic to hear your, your expert on the programme. Our expert is a lecturer at NUI in Galway, Deirdre Curran. Uh, but Eilish wants to know low pay within the sector. That's another real problem, particularly with the rising cost of living. It certainly is a, a problem. And, you know, low pay has consequences. So people have to supplement their income elsewhere. They're not able to plan for the future. They have to put off life choices like buying a home or, or having children. Um, now that inflation has gone through the roof, um, and again, pardon the pun, people can't get accommodation in order to do hospital yeah, yeah, work. So yeah. if you're arguing to bring in people from Europe and... Where are they and going to live? You, where, where are they where going are they? to live? And I mean, to think, you know, only last week we, we mentioned it, that we have to have legislation to make sure that tips go to the people that they're intended to go to. Exactly. I mean, and, and I was even scratching my said, why do we, you know, yeah. common decency would dictate that if you give a tip to somebody, you go to the person, that it yeah. shouldn't be part of their wage. Absolutely not. Um, and I was actually involved in um, uh, persuading uh, Leo Varadkar, and I have to give credit where credit is due, to uh, amend the legislation to cover for the issues that hospitality workers face in relation to tips because that's an issue that I covered in my research as well. Um, And the legislation that is emerging is actually, it's quite a good piece of legislation, but that came from pushing and pushing. Well done, well done. And a lot of resistance, that has to be said, from uh, from employer um, Uh, associations. But then yesterday I read that Fault Ireland has said it's targeting retirees and stay-at-home parents. Yeah. I mean, that's not going... Well, you know, we have to be... I, I wouldn't be necessarily against that strategy. We have to be as creative as we But we need to treat them right. Can. We need to treat them right and we need to give them the flexibility. So if you have someone who retired early and they still would love to be mixing with people and would yeah. like to do a bit of work, we have to carve the roles to suit the individuals. Um, and we can't have them working, you know, 72 hours a week and we can't have them working halfway through the night. So we do need creative strategies uh, because the reality is there aren't enough people on the ground to do the work because 
so many of them had to make the choice to work elsewhere. Um, but I do want to say again that it's not all businesses, and yeah. that's a case study of good practice that Finian and I are conducting. We need to highlight good practice because this is a hotel, and there are many of them who are treating people with dignity and respect, and wait for it, still making a profit. You know, mm. this isn't a charity argument. It's an ethical argument. Okay. And, um, and in fact, I think they will, you know, it will lead to bigger profits and more business success because people will stay, people will give, uh, you know, will be more committed to the jobs that they're doing. And so to and me, therefore, like, it'll be a much pleasant occasion indeed. for somebody visiting and, and staying or, or, or eating in that restaurant. Yeah, this, because if you're treated terribly and you've just been shouted at or, or worse, uh, someone in the kitchen has grabbed you and pulled you across the kitchen. You're not going to go out and, and, and put on and your smiling. best smile and and tell people that everything is wonderful and you have a nice day. Okay, um, listen. I have a funny feeling we'll be speaking to you again, uh, Deirdre. But listen, thank time, you th- and thank thank you for that. I really enjoyed uh, our chat and thanks thank for joining you. us this morning. Good uh, morning thank you to you for highlighting this. Thanks no problem. Bye bye, Deirdre Curran. There, a lecturer at NUI in uh, Galway. On the way, some employers treat people within hospitality and something something has to be done and something has to give uh, because it is an industry that really is struggling to employ staff but more importantly to retain staff and if they're not retaining them uh, it means there's something wrong within the workforce why do people just not want to stay 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. In a Shannon's hugely popular gardens and galleries event returns to the village on the weekend of the 16th and 17th of July. To preview this year's event, I'm joined by one of Inna Shannon's best known and best loved gardeners. And that's Alice Taylor. Good morning to you, Alice. Good morning, Patricia. <laughs> now, I mentioned yesterday the very sad passing of the RTE's gardening expert, Dermot O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was such a lovely man. And he attributed his love of gardening to his grandmother when he was growing up. Where did your love of gardening come from? I, I suppose my mother, she, you know, gardening that time was kind of rare enough because there was no garden centres. She just bought seeds and she, she had a little garden down to the right of the front door and um, there was old rose bushes as well there since my grandmother's time. And um, so, yeah, you know, it was just sweet williams and nasturtiums and roses and, you know, they, they just brightened up our yeah. lives. So I, I think it went back to that really, Patricia. And then I'm a farmer's daughter, so I think the love of the earth is in us. Do, and do you grow fruit and veg, or is it just all shrubs no, and plants? I have. I inherited a huge apple tree from Uncle Jackie, and, and um, it's. I'd say it's over a hundred years old. No, I, I would grow, grow lettuce and tomatoes and things, but. Patricia, I think real gardeners grow food, so I'm not really a real gardener. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you, this is your first Gardens and Galleries event since the pandemic. You obviously weren't able to have it for the last no, two no, years. No, no. Just r- remind listeners how it operates, how it works. Oh, yeah, well, no, it, it, the name Gardens and Galleries, that's what it's all about. We've about uh, 11, we've exactly 11 gardens opened, and then we have as many artists displaying their paintings in the parish hall, the churches, the restaurants, 
the pub yards. And um, so that's the name actually says Britishies. And the gardens, they're all different, Patricia. You know that we've Farnham Garden, a lodge garden, or a newly retired gardener who was really into it now big time. So every, you know, every garden tells a story. You know, Patricia, I'm not really a gardener. I just love kind of messing around in the garden. Yeah. But, um, and then we have a gardener who grows all his own food. So there's huge variety on the garden trail. And so you come to the parish hall, you get your map and your ticket for 10 euro. That gets you into everything. And we have a mini bus, then if you don't want to drive around the parish, there's five gardens in the in the village and then the, the other six around the parish. We have a mini bus, courtesy of rural transport. And um, Well, that's, that's good for people who mightn't be able to walk from, from garden to garden. Yeah, or they yeah. might like to drive our country roads. Yeah, so you yeah. just sit in and you get driven around, chauffeur driven. And you just then ramble around somebody's garden and is the owner there? Can you ask questions like, oh, yeah. what's that plant but there now? If the owner is more knowledgeable than I am you can yeah. <laughs> I learned more it's amazing the people who come to see uh, gardens they're great they're lovely people the first time I opened my garden Patricia I learned more about gardening because experts came in and gardeners are very tolerant and uh, the biggest thing about this is it's so sociable mm. people meet in in different gardens and if you meet the same person in a couple of gardens you kind of get to know them and yeah, you yeah and the bit of banter starts then right, yeah, yeah. yeah and all neighbours meet up and I think we're starved for that at the moment yeah really and, and you're, own, you're, own, you're, you're one of the 11 again your garden <laughs> I am I am, I am. Does that, are you under huge pressure now it's, it's not this weekend it's the weekend after is there mad tidying up and oh weed pulling God, going on you wouldn't believe it <laughs> You wouldn't believe it. You see, when you're opening your garden, you look at it with different eyes and you think, oh, my God. But despite all that, the, you know, the people that come around. I remember the first time I was asked to open my garden, I nearly had heart attack. <laughs> and uh, but DJ Murphy, a band of gardens, had said to me, as he said, for goodness sake, don't get so fussed, he said. People only want to get their noses in other people's gardens. That's it. That's, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I've, people drive past going, I wonder what that garden is like. Yeah. It's a great opportunity to, to, to get in and have a look. And of course, you like to paint. Have you any, uh, would you be part of the galleries bit of it? No, I would love it. Except I, I might shove some of my, my, my paintings out on my own window. Is that something. all? Okay. Yeah. All right. But we have um, a lot of very, very good artists. And uh, so it's a combination of 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 gardens and galleries. And it's all local people. Yeah, and people yeah. come in from people come from all over. We're amazed, like people do travel, and it's um, I suppose we're very we're ideally located like in the main road to West Park, yeah. and you just go to the parish hall, and off you go. But but I I think it's kind of unique that there's so many gardens open, like eleven gardens open I in in the one. You know, and Peter Dowdlow does our gardening slot over the last few weeks. He's yeah. a great advocate for the Irish Cancer Society, yeah. and he's been mentioning various gardens that are open. But it would be one open one Sunday and another open on another yeah. Sunday. But I, I think yours is unique because you can just go park up the car in Inishan and spend the day rambling around. Right. I just think there's something very unique uh, about it. And what do you do with the money raised? It goes into tidy towns. Oh, does it? Okay. And, 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 and friends of Inishannon. But it really isn't. 
about making the money it's more because I mean it's 10 euro for the day and and then you get it you get into everything for 10 euro and you get free transport because but it's about the sociability it's great for the parish Patricia yeah because you know if you're running a thing like that it's all hands on deck yeah yeah everyone I'm making sure that the village itself looks looks perfect and then there's a couple of like there's an art demonstration going on in the parish hall on Saturday and he's a super super artist he's an equine artist he specialises in painting horses and um, he's he's come to live here with us so we're blessed with the people the the people who have come in you know and that'll be that'll be very very good and uh, and then there's a for history buffs there's a walk around I I love the idea of that walk around the village yeah we've that twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday you start in the old graveyard and we have a, a historian will give you all the history and then we have a wood walk you see the village is quite near Drumkeen Wood mm, which and you the, love uh, yeah I love Drumkeen Wood it's lovely and um, we have Mr. O'Brien he's well, you know, he's into wildlife and birds and he'll take a group around the wood uh, on both days so th- there's kind of a lot going on there really is, there is. and then we have a mini vintage we have a gramophone recital and um, so there's something for and a planned sale so there's something for all you know for all taste and then there's a lot of you know little cafes and restaurants around the village and in a Shannon hotel so you could get fed and watered en route (laughs) (laughs) and meet up with old friends and make new ones and it looks like the gods are shining on you because the weather's picking up from this week and it's expected to extend right into the following week and and across your weekend whenever we have you on people always always get texts and say what a delight it is to hear the lovely Alice Taylor on your programme this morning Uh, with a couple of listeners saying is Alice writing anything at the moment where are you at with books? I'm I'm bringing out a book later on this year. Do you know the name of it, Patricia? What? Banana. <laughs> Banana. Oh, okay. What would so, we do without bananas? Ah, uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> we shall look forward to reading all about banana, banana. In, in your new book. Listen, yeah. a pleasure as all. Are there places to eat in the Shannon? Yes, there is. Somebody's asking. Yes, you can be. You'll get fed and foundered when you're there as well. Yeah, everything, okay. everything, everything is here on the day, and it's a very sociable location. You know, so not next weekend. Now it's no, the weekend, weekend after afterwards. Sixteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth from eleven to five and uh, it's a meander and everything that's part of it is it's all about relaxation and and chatting yeah and don't go this weekend because the big clean up is happening and Alice will be in the garden <laughs> you get a brush that's it unless you go to go in and weed listen Alice it is a pleasure as always look after yourself and yeah. we'll talk again soon yeah thanks for take care sure. bye yeah. bye the wonderful Alice Taylor joining us live from Inna Shannon in advance of gardens and galleries you're listening to Cork Today on Replay phone and text lines are currently closed and if you're a fan of Love Island of course you will be aware that Ronan Keating's eldest son Jack has just entered the fray of Love Island he's one of the newest contestants to go into uh, Casa Moore even though watching it I, I can't see him actually coupling up with anyone uh, which means I don't think he's going to make it into the main villa but let's uh, wait and see there's a few more days to go because he's coming across as a kind of a, a likeable chap, chap, chap and we know from 
previous Love Islands that Irish contestants have a tendency to do very well in Love Island. But my biggest worry, having watched Jack Keating in Love Island for the last uh, two nights, is he's got like he's a got gorgeous Irish red hair on him, but he's got that fair Irish skin. And everybody else around the villa, they're all superly uh, tanned. And every time I see him when they're filming him and he's sitting in the side of the pool or he's on one of the sun loungers, all I'm worried about is the sunburn. And the mother in me is kind of saying, God, has, has he got factor 50 on him? Can somebody put him in the shade, please? It's one thing. But he is coming across as a very laid back and a, and a nice, nice young young man. That's uh, Jack Keating uh, currently in uh, Love Island. Here all of the biggest hits this summer of uh, the summer headline acts non-stop just reminding you the Z103's Back Garden Festival is now streaming online with Harvey Normal and JBL of course your specialist in sound this summer and you can listen to the Back Garden Festival on our app or you can go to c103.ie and it'll be great to have those hits blaring out as the weather gets better I think there'll be a lot of barbecues happening this weekend and they are long long overdue let me take a look at some of your thoughts coming into 0818103103 uh, we spoke about the, the budget that's going to be happening in but still about two and a half months away but Donna in Fomoy uh, says I hope that the budget will take into account the workers who earn just too much to be able to claim anything on social welfare and yet they're hit with all of the increases and have to pay out everything. We're the ones who get up early in the morning to go to work and it's now actually costing people to travel to and from work. If we decide to give up work in the morning we won't automatically fall into social welfare as we'll be encouraged to retrain uh, etc. And it's uh, really tough on people who are heading out to work every day hoping something will be done in the budget. Well, you know, when we went through it with uh, Sean Defoe there's certainly uh, it's going to be I think it's about a, bi- uh, a billion has been set aside for changes and tweaks to the tax system Me, Leo, Leo Varadkar has been talking about bringing in a new rate of 30% because at the moment people they're taxed at 20% and then if they they go into a higher tax bracket you go from 20% to 40% and quite quickly you can jump from 20% to 40% and that's a big big difference when you're paying tax so he's talking about having something in the middle like a 30% tax rate and that certainly will have a knock on effect for many many workers but we didn't get that kind of detail yesterday we are going to have to wait for the budget but of course as so many people are saying even though they brought back the budget and we were because the budget traditionally happens in October everyone was saying we can't wait till October and there was talks that would happen in September September and they did announce yesterday that it is going to happen in September but the worry but the, the September date is the end of September so they've really only brought the budget back by about two weeks but there is this promise and it's only time will tell that increases particularly increases in social welfare and I'm assuming for the taxes as well that they will kick in fairly quickly after the budget gets announced normally they'll announce like the extra fiver for the social welfare and the old age pensioners and then they've got to wait for January and some years they had to wait until March. I remember one year it came in just the weekend of St Patrick's Day having been announced the previous October. People had nearly forgotten about it but they are promising this year that they won't allow people to wait that long but there's still a long period. We're only at the beginning of July. There's still a long period to the end of September when uh, people are struggling at the moment. 0818 103 103 we mentioned cycling and cycling on footpaths and this came in from one of our listeners in Bantry who wondered was it a common occurrence in other towns because this listener reckons that there's a lot of cycling on footpaths in Bantry obviously this 
person doesn't think it's a very safe thing to be doing and was wondering is, is it happening in other towns uh, as well or is it just something that just, just seems to be particular to uh, Bantry I mentioned the the mobile scooters you know the, the electric scooters that a lot of people have and the speed of those and you'll see them certainly on footpaths somebody says when they heard me say that said, Trish, wasn't there somebody knocked over by one of those electric uh, scooters and uh, yes there are bikes on footpaths in Mallow says this listener really really dangerous Christine in Cork City says cycling on the footpaths is a huge problem in Cork City and in the suburbs there are different reasons why it is but it is not fair on pedestrians there should be laws brought in specifically for cyclists as they can be a huge huge danger to pedestrians says Christine so when I saw people talking about you know why what laws are there to stop people cycling on footpaths well the news was on I just did a quick bit of research to find out is it legal or illegal to cycle on a footpath and it says you are not allowed to cycle on a footpath unless there's a designated cycle lane on the footpath or you're obviously entering or exit a footpath a property, you know, if you can cycle in while there's nobody around, you can cycle into your own property or cycle into, uh, you know, a, a gateway or whatever. You're allowed to do that. But cycling on a, a footpath, you're not allowed to do it. But there is a sting. There's not a specific fixed charge offence. Now, there's fixed charges for lots of other things that you can do wrong on a bicycle, but there isn't one for cycling on a footpath. However, you can be fined for doing so if the guardie deemed that the cycling to be without reasonable consideration. So it's without reasonable consideration. But there isn't actually a fixed charge for cycling on a footpath. But a number of people are saying just how dangerous it is and that something needs to be done about uh, it. Ian in Glanmire says sometimes it's easier and safer for cyclists to be on footpath rather than the roadway. And that's why Ian reckons, and I made that point as well, that that's why you can see cyclists who are on a road and the road gets very busy and there's no one on the footpath. They'll get up on the footpath, but then it's just, it's a danger and it's a worry. And it can be intimidating for people on the footpath if there's if there's somebody cycling uh, against them. OK, thank you for your texts and calls on that. And just staying on footpaths, Tom and Donnerell has contacted us uh, to say he usually does his job in the town of Donnerell but he's now of late finding it impossible to find a parking space on the main street and one of the reasons for it is that they've widened the footpaths and they've taken away some of the parking spaces he says those footpaths were wide enough he doesn't know why they decided to widen them and he's fearful that it's Donnerell will soon be a no-go area and the businesses will suffer then if people are having difficulty finding parking spaces now Tom we actually Came, this came up on the programme about two months ago you're not the first to have complained about the widening of the footpaths in parts of uh, Donnerill and it's part of an overall scheme that's happening across the town not everyone is happy with it others think it's lovely it's nice if you're driving through uh, to see these wider footpaths uh, etc but if it's taking parking spaces and there wasn't many parking spaces if it's taken away valuable parking spaces then yes it does certainly become uh, an issue we mentioned trains on the programme earlier and that was the poor old listener they drove up to Mallow train station last week on Saturday they wanted to get the 10.45 train to Dublin parked their car paid for their all day parking €4.50 and went in and when they went into the ticket office there was a sign up saying the next train is at 2.45 all the morning trains were fully booked out and they couldn't get a refund on their parking ticket and then had to drive to Dublin instead and was just making the point that we've got a Green Minister who is the Transport Minister who's doing everything 
to try to encourage us to use more public transport and yet there's not enough seats on the train for people that wanted to use it and there was a car on the road to Dublin that didn't need to be on the road to Dublin last uh, Saturday. Well Joe in Kilmallock uh, says if he needs to go to Dublin he has to drive from Kilmallock to Charleville, park up the car, hop on the train and then go to Dublin and then come back, get into the car and drive from Charleville to Kilmallock. He says the, the, the train station in Kilmallock could easily be done up. He's actually contacted the Green Party on this issue but got no uh, response. Why are they telling us one thing and then campaigning for another thing? They, they still haven't responded to him. We've been talking about that. There has been a push to open more train stations along that Cork to Limerick Railway line. I mean, there's so much talk about the new motorway and then there's so much talk from the Green Party about, you know, making the rail system uh, better and more uh, efficient and get more people onto the trains. And so I don't know if Kilmallock was is one of the ones that's been mentioned. There's kind of a push. I know the Butterfront one and Mornabby, they were suggesting in Mornabby as well. I think Rath Cormac, were they the other places? I don't think Kilmallock uh, was mentioned. But yeah, it, it seems nonsensical when the train has to go through Kilmallock and yet you've got to drive to Charleville, park up the car to get on the train and then to come back and get into the car again particularly when we're trying to lower emissions and we're trying to get more people to use public transport 0818 103 103 Thank you for your text and Danny in Hazelwood on the budget when I was talking about the summer economic forecast he thinks there should have been a mini budget and it should have been now he feels the end of September is simply way too long to wait for the help the help that so many people need at the moment. And Alan, this is on hospitality and that great chat that we had with, I found, that I found Deirdre Curran from the, she's a lecturer in NUI in Galway. I found her fascinating and she really, really is passionate, isn't she, on behalf of hospitality workers. As she said, you know, some employers in hospitality and hotel owners are very good and absolutely respect and love their staff and look after their staff. And you will actually know the ones who look after the staff businesses within hospitality that you go into where you will see workers who've been working there for many, many years. You can be guaranteed that those staff are well looked after. But the the problem is the businesses and hoteliers that are constantly changing staff, maybe they're just not treating the staff in the way they should be treated. And certainly the pay has is, is a huge issue for some aspects of hospitality and the hours that they have to work and the type of contracts that they're put on. Alan says, morning, Patricia, listening to the interview with uh, Deirdre, who's done the research and some of the things that she had to say. And she spoke to the people who were working in hospitality. This was before the uh, pandemic. She says, he says, just on hospitality uh, industry, especially with regard to kitchen staff, says Alan, if you ever watch any of the television programmes with regard to you know what goes on in kitchens in particular the ones that feature Gordon Ramsay and the way he treats people that work under him is it any wonder that people will not expect accept this any longer all those chefs and owners think it's acceptable to treat people like this because they're watching that kind of abuse on uh, TV says Alan I think yeah I think chefing and working in a kitchen has got to be one of the toughest toughest jobs in hospitality and like that Gordon Ramsay didn't start that I mean if you you talk to anyone who trained as a chef and they'll talk about the shouting that goes on I, 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 don't, I don't know 
and because people get trained that way do they think then it's acceptable that they must always shout is it the only way to get your message across in a restaurant is to inside in the kitchen of a restaurant is to shout across at you at all your commie chefs and your, and your junior chefs I, I, I don't know but it seems to it's not just something that Gordon Ramsay does it seems to go on everywhere and you're thinking about the heat inside in those kitchens and the pressure that they work under it's just yeah uh, it's, a, it's a tough, tough job uh, to do. And Alan is very much speaking from experience. But I was watching a TV programme on the hotel. Was it called the Balmoral Hotel? I'm sure it's just called the Balmoral Hotel in uh, Scotland. And they did one of these, you know, these fly on the wall documentaries, which I absolutely adore. It's a little mini series. I think it went over three or four programmes. And they unfortunately started to film it at the beginning of 2020. You know, they weren't to know that COVID was going to reach their doorstep. So uh, a lot of it was the, the first couple of months were normal. Then there was the mention that there was some kind of a virus in China and it looked like it was moving out. And of course, the hotel had to close down. And the one thing that struck me about now, it's a five star hotel. Beautiful, beautiful hotel. Really expensive uh, to stay there. You could only dream that. You know, I was watching it. That's my husband saying, would you like to stay there? I said, oh, I'd love to stay there the way they treat people. It was just, oh, you'd feel like a king or a queen at day if you stayed in the Balmar. Anyway, so it's a five-star hotel. I'm painting the picture for you. But the one thing that I felt having watched the three or four episodes of that little miniseries was the way they treated their staff with the utmost respect and in return, the loyalty back from their staff were incredible. And even during all of the shutdowns, you know, they were keeping in contact with their staff. Chefs in the kitchen, you know, were having regular Zoom meetings with the other chefs and they were using the time in their own kitchens, you know, to try out new menus and to try out different things that they could do. And I just thought, my God, when you saw the respect level that their staff had received, you know then why the staff then were treating the people that were coming into the hotel with nothing but love and respect because that's all that they were getting on a daily basis. It just seemed like I've never had an urge to work in hospitality. But having watched that programme, I kind of thought, God, I wouldn't mind working there either. I mean, and they worked hard. They absolutely worked hard. And a five star hotel where clients are paying huge, huge sums of money to stay there. They expect nothing but the best. And certainly with the respect that the staff were being given by the employers and by their department heads, it was being reflected in their work for sure. 0818103103 and a final one um the whole hospitality sector. I think what I'm here is that employers are not paying people enough within hospitality and some of them can be bullies uh, too. Many of them are just looking for cleaners and nothing more. I know what I'm talking about. I've worked myself in the hospitality sector. Some of those people that work in the industry shouldn't, should never have entered the industry. 0818 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. We start off with a cancellation. Bingo in the Skibbereen Eagle in Tregumna is cancelled for tonight and it's due to a local bereavement. Geraldine Lynch uh, from McCroom Buffalo continues her 1,000 kilometre hike been going on now for it's three weeks in total and how many weeks she's left we must catch up with Georgine again she's going from Ballycastle in County Antrim and she's walking all the way to Alihees on the Beira Peninsula she's appealing for donations to help her because she's doing this mammoth hike 
to raise funds for breakthrough cancer research, you can d- donate by search from Antrim to Allahys on www.idonate.ie. The Boeing Cemetery Mass, that's going ahead tonight. That's at half past seven. And if you're in Glantan, your Cemetery Mass will take place tomorrow, Wednesday, also at half past uh, seven. And Colin Vintage afternoon makes a welcome return next Sunday 10th of July at the GAA Colin Grounds live music by TR Dallas plus a recital from the Colin Pipe Band balloon artist Kenny the Clown will entertain the crowd plus sideshows and children's sports Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie and the Sophie Toscon de Plantier case is making all of the papers uh, again today this is because the Taoiseach yesterday Micheál Martin said that no stone was going to be left unturned as the cold case review of the of Sophie's murder investigation Investigation to try to identify who killed her and to bring that person to justice. Mial Martin says he has there has been advances in technology, particularly DNA technology, since the December 1996 murder, and he's indicated that this name may now assist in progressing the investigation. Actually, the Justice Minister at that same event that Mio Martin was speaking at, Helen McEntee, said the cold case review had the intended purpose of ensuring that the murder of the 39-year-old, the murder of the 39-year-old is brought to justice. They were both uh, speaking at a uh, a, a redevelopment of the Fitzpatrick Street Garda station that was in Dublin yesterday and of course we spoke with Ralph Regal on the programme last week when it got announced that there was going to be this cold case uh, review when it was launched by the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris and actually t- in today's paper Ralph is writing the Irish Independent that French authorities are willing to offer Garda full access to their eight year probe into the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier and that news comes as the Gardaí confirmed that all aspects of the original investigation and the original investigation started shortly after a murder in 1996 and went on until 1998 and all aspects from witness statements to the forensics they had at the time all of that will now and is now being poured over by specialist officers. Officers are hoping that a series of new forensic tests coupled with a renewed focus on the critical timeline surrounding the killer might just yield the breakthrough. And they've been waiting for a breakthrough now for nearly three decades. And the review, by the way, is expected to take up to a year at least to uh, complete because it was one of the questions I asked Ralph last week. How long did he expect the review at that stage? He said there was no indication. So he's expecting now a year, even though I heard from somebody else um, they were saying it could even go to two years. But I suppose they've been given, there hasn't been a time frame set on it. The investigation has been given, I suppose, as long as they feel is necessary. Now, the detectives here in Ireland have yet to decide if they will require full access to the French file, which will be largely based on the original Garda investigation, which obviously they'll uh, they'll have. But it will also include statements from some French witnesses that wouldn't have been available to the original Irish investigation. And French police consider some of the statements they have to be uh, crucial. However, a formal request is likely to be required as obviously forces in both uh, countries are determined to avoid issues with the cold case review 
over Ireland's repeated refusal of the French extradition requests for the British-born journalist and poet uh, Ian uh, Bailey. And of course, we know uh, Ian Bailey, freelance uh, journalist, was tried and convicted in absentia of Sophie Tuscan's Plantier's murder by a Paris court. And that was in May of uh, 2019. At that time then, he was sentenced in his absence to 25 years in uh, prison. And Ian Bailey himself described, though, that French prosecution as a show trial. And he described it as a mockery of uh, justice. But it's interesting that the French have come out straight away and said, look, take a look at our file. There may be something in it that could be of use to it. And the fact that, you know, we've got our own Taoiseach Mio Martin saying no stone will be unturned. I imagine if they think there's anything of use from that French investigation, they will no doubt uh, use it. But once again, opening the papers to see, you know, that gore- the, some of those gorgeous photographs that the family very kindly have given to the media to use of this lovely, young, vibrant woman uh, who sadly was uh, murdered in December of 1996. 0818103103. John Paul, taking your calls and just on cycling on footpaths, a text just in to say, Patricia, people are cycling on footpaths in Mill Street, especially using those e-scooters. They can be very dangerous if people are stepping out of shops because yeah, you step out of the shop onto the footpath so people have to be mindful of that that there could be a bicycle or an e-bicycle whizzing by and could certainly knock you down thank you for your text to 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie Bat Rehabilitation Group says it's overjoyed that bat pups discovered here in Cork have been re- United with their mothers. The four-year-old little creatures were discovered in the roof space of the AIB branch in Blarney. And Susan Kerwin from Bat Rehabilitation Ireland joins me to chat about what was a very large-scale operation to save these uh, baby bats. Good, good, uh, good morning to you, Susan. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. And, and listen, I'm so thrilled to have you on the programme today because I was unaware of your bat, re- bat rehabilitation group. So I'm delighted to be able to give you any publicity at all to let people know that you do exist. So I suppose let's start with this story first. When were you contacted about the bats uh, here in Blarney? Um, I got a phone call last Tuesday to, to say that there was two bat pups that were found. They were four weeks old and they were found on the floor of the Blarney branch. So I headed down to pick them up and take them into care. Um, as they're four weeks, they're still very reliant on milk. So it was important that they came in to care. Um, but the following day, then I got another call from the bank to say that they'd found a further 40 pups on the floor upstairs and downstairs in the branch. Uh, which is a huge amount on its own. But unfortunately, while they, they had contacted the National Parks and Wildlife Rangers to come in and examine the, the branch to see where these bat pups were actually getting in, they found a further 50 on the Thursday. So that was 90 plus bats that were all in care and all of these babies had to be fed every three hours with a milk formula. So while I was in Limerick trying to keep all of these babies alive, there was a team of ecologists in the branch with the branch staff trying to find the entrance of how they got into the bank to get them back to their mothers. So it was a huge, uh, a huge job. And by so all think, by all accounts, the bank staff uh, you, you were, were really good. I mean, they, they, they closed the bank, for example. 
the bank the branch was closed for the whole week and uh, they were amazing. They were, they were just solely concerned about the welfare of the bats. They were so tiny that it would, you know, if anybody had been in the branch, it could have been easily stepped upon. Ah. So they really just wanted to get these babies taken care of. But uh, um, the staff were brilliant. On the day when we got the call to say that the ecologist had found where the bats were getting into the branch, we had to bring, I had to bring the 90 plus bats, all had to be down there. They all had to be rehydrated with a little rehydration solution. And some of the maintenance staff from the bank even came in to lend a hand to feed them before they went back. So it was amazing. They were, the way that AIB and the staff dealt with it in the branch was just inspirational. Have you, have you ever had to rescue so many bats at one go? No, and I really hope it never happens again. It was just three days of non-stop feeding all these babies, trying to keep them alive. So it was, it was a huge undertaking. But With a little syringe, was it? A tiny little pipette, just tiny little, smaller than a one mil syringe. And they're, they're so small. They're, the pups themselves were weighing just under four grams. So they're taking only 0.3 or 0.4 uh, of a mil of milk each time. So they're, they're so tiny. And you are a voluntary organisation. Well, it, from what I can gather, it just seems to be you, is it? It's just me. So um, in Limerick, it's I'm, it's just myself rehabbing, but we have a, a team of volunteers that help with the transport of the bats up and down the country. So I'm on the road all the time meeting people but because we're getting bats in from all over the country. This year, we have opened a branch in Dublin. So there's Amy Walsh. Um, she's a veterinary nurse and she started taking in bats in Dublin. But it's it's a huge scale and there's only a small amount of us that do it, but we are voluntary. But they would it. normally be like one or two injured bats, is it, that you would take in? Normally, on a, on a, during the year, we get anything from 250 to oh. just below 300 bats. Uh, this year is going to be, I'd say, close to 400, just because of those pups that came in as well. But we, myself personally, I would take in anywhere between 250 and 300 bats per year. Incredible. It's just incredible. So they found where the roost was. So you, you, you it's in Brewery you are, isn't it? I'm based in, in Brewery. In Brewery. Um, so, you, yeah. so you had to pack up all these tiny little baby bats, which, by the way, I didn't know were called pups. Didn't know yeah. bats, babies were called pups. So you had to pack them all up, bring them down, and they've been reunited now, have they? So they were all reunited, all put back into the roost. So at the moment, the whole, um, it's, the maintenance on the roof is ongoing so we still have the ecologists are still there um, with the Bank of Ireland staff and the plan is now that once they have the roof mended in the inside of the building the bats will still be able to enter and exit from the outside of the building and then there's going to be a very large bat box a a maternity roof that will be uh, erected on the outside of the building so please God, next year when we go back to have a look, all of those bats and their babies will be in there instead of in the roof. Okay, is that's, that's, that is the long term plan. Now, take me back. How and when did you develop this passion and this interest in bats? My love for bats started at a very young age, but it really developed well in my late 20s. So when I was 27, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And I, at that stage, I had two young kids. I was a single mother. And uh, as you can imagine, it was just the most horrendous time of my life. 
and myself I couldn't I found that the night time was the most difficult because when the kids are in bed you have all that time to think you're sitting around so I would summer months I would go out into the back sit in the back garden with my cup of tea and I'd be you know watching the bats and at the back of the house and I just from watching them I decided okay I'm going to do a little project here so I went and I bought a bat detector and I studied what type bats I had living around the area and I recorded all that data and then it, it just seemed to kind of snowball from there where I looked forward rather than thinking about the night time and dreading it because I was less there at my thoughts I was looking forward to this because this was my time at night to study the bats and I felt like I was doing something productive so it just seemed like a natural progression to get more involved and to start caring for them because I, I felt that if it wasn't for, for that, studying those bats, it would have been a very difficult and different road for me during that time. It's so. an incredible story. And you and you fully recovered from the spite cancer? Yes. Well, you know, like, because it was uh, uh, so long ago now, you're talking that the, the radiation and the treatment wouldn't have been as good as it is today. So most women during that time would have been left with um, some problems yeah. due to the radiation and the treatment. But yeah, I'm doing great. And well I'm, I'm, well, yeah, well, my well, family's doing great, so I'm happy. And so, and then you set up this Bat Rehabilitation Ireland. So the word went out that the the crazy bat lady in brewery. Ah, oh, we've got a bat for you. So, but that's a that's voluntary. I, I, do you get any funding towards that? Because there's a cost involved in looking after no, the bats. We don't get any funding towards it at all. We don't get any grants or anything like that from from the government. So it's all voluntary. And people are, are, you know, anybody that's involved in wildlife rehabilitation in Ireland, like I work closely with a few organisations, like the Hogsbrickle and Nimerick and the Barnall Project. We all do this voluntary work and, you know, it, it's so it's so rewarding for us. But people, I think people don't realise that they're really shocked when they hear you do this without funding or you do yeah. it self-funded. But um, no, unfortunately, any wildlife rehabilitation in Ireland are working out of their own pockets, their own families' pockets, and their volunteers are doing the same. So if you do need the help of a, of a wildlife rehabilitator in Ireland for any type of... Just keep... You know, we always say, look, we're all in the same boat. Uh, this, you know, with the economy the way it is, we're all struggling. Something like just bringing the animal to the rehabber saves so much time and saves them... Diesel. Well, I'm thinking that, yeah, I'm thinking of petrol and diesel at the moment if you're out trying to collect... Yeah. So if if somebody fa- finds an injured bat, bring it to you rather than that will save on your costs. Exactly. You know. But I, 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 and I would direct people to you have a great, um, I saw it on Facebook, Bat Rehabilitation Ireland, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's called. Um, it's not just bats, so there's other birds. Yeah, so my, I'm a falconer as well. So I've been a falconer for almost 20 years where I've been training birds of prey and working with birds of prey. So I do help with other animals as well. I take in owls and hawks, any type of buzzards, peregrine falcons. Um, we help. Some t- this year we've we've raised a couple of fox cubs because, you know, it's just that there's so many other rescues are under pressure as well that we all try to help each other. That's the only way that it works. Um, so, yeah. Taking other animals as well. Well done. You really are. You really are uh, incredible. But then the very mention of bats, 
some people are they just the fear of God is put into them if you said you've got bats up up in the in, in the yeah. attic what, what do you say to this? there's a lot of myths around that I mean the, the one I would have grown up with was if you were out at night and you saw a bat oh mind your hair they'll get stuck in your hair that's very common I get that a lot I get that but a they lot. don't so, no they don't so bats have the, they use echolocation when they're hunting at night and echolocation allows them to map the world around them just by using a series of sound. So they're sending out this high-pitched uh, screech or echo and then that bounces off the surrounding areas and it tells them what's there. If it's an insect that they want to eat, if it's a human they need to avoid. So even in complete darkness, they can avoid any obstacles that are there. So that's a, that's the first myth that we hear. Blind as a bat then is crazy. <laughs> blind as a bat. The other one that we have people, can, we get a lot of people that are worried that, you know, they're in their house, they're going to make them sick or, you know, which isn't because of COVID. Um, we had a lot of concerned people contacting. But I always try to reassure them. So you think we've been living around these animals all of our life. We've always had them living in, you know, in the under the eaves of our house or in the crevice in the trees in our garden. You have nothing to be concerned about. Nothing to be concerned about them at all. They are a very important part of the ecosystem. If you have bats living around your house, they will remove all of the insects, so the nasty ones like the midgets and the mosquitoes. They feed on those. We don't have any types of vampire bats here in Ireland. There are three species of bats that feed on blood, and thankfully they all live in uh, central to South America. So all of the bat species we have here are just insectivorous. And another one that we get then is, will they be eating the wires and stuff like that if they are in, you know, or eating the material in the roof? So they don't build a nest. If you have something that's up in your attic and you can hear it at night nibbling away, that's a problem with mice or, or some sort of rodents. But bats don't. And they're, having bats coming into the building like they did in the bank in, in Blarney is very rare. So you don't have to be concerned if they are up there 99% of the time, they're not even going to be inside in the house. So you're not going to find them in the attic or they're not going to come down through the roof. And is there anything we can do to help the bat population ourselves in our own gardens? Yes, yes. so you can plant nice scented stocks um, or grace, like uh, evening primrose, or um, nice scenting flowers, so like cowslips. Having just a good build-up of insect areas. So if you had like a little water feature, it doesn't have to be a pond, it can be just a big basin that's in the corner of the garden. That will encourage insects, lovely habitat. So if you think, draw insects into your garden, that brings the bats in. Okay, a couple of people want to know, are bats a protected species? All bats are, and their roof sites are protected in Ireland. And they're protected by Irish law and European. So if you do have a situation where you're concerned about bats, in your attic or in the eaves of your house, you can contact National Parks and Wildlife Services. Their rangers will come out and they'll assess it and then they can go through what needs to be done with, with that roost. If you have a problem where you find a bat in your house or in your garden or anything like that, you can contact myself on Battery at Battery Rehabilitation Ireland and we'll help you there. 
Okay, lots of people saying fair play to Susan. I didn't realise all the care that's needed until I heard her speaking about the bat pups uh, this morning. I have a massive phobia, sadly, about these little creatures. But after hearing Susan's personal story, what a wonderful woman. She is a trooper. And uh, Connie in Kiss Game said, so we've got a real bat woman in Ireland. Well done uh, to her. And uh, you can check out Bat Rehabilitation Group. It's up on, on the, uh, and she's got a really good uh, Facebook, Bat Rehabilitation Ireland. It's on Facebook. Are you on other social media as well, Susan? We're, yeah, we're, I'm also on uh, Instagram. All right. Listen, it's an incredible story and well done on what you've done for our Cork Bats uh, this week. We very much appreciate it. And it was a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank thank you, you for that and stay safe. Thanks a million. God okay, bless. Bye bye. Uh, Susan Corwin of uh, Bat Rehabilitation Ireland. Thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. We're back with you tomorrow morning at 10. And to the nine, Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.